0: Who is forgiven. This comes just after Jesus is called in verse 34 of Luke 7, a friend of sinners. And we see an example of that in this woman of the city. Luke says, one of the Pharisees asked him that is Jesus to eat with him. And he went into the Pharisees' house and reclined at table. he would have known who and what sort of woman this is who is touching him, for she is a sinner. And Jesus answering said to him, Simon, I have something to say to you. And he answered, say it, teacher. A certain money lender had two debtors. One owed 500 denarii and the other 50. When they could not pay, he canceled the debt of both. But from the time I came in, she has not ceased to kiss my feet. You did not anoint my head with oil, but she has anointed my feet with ointment. Therefore I tell you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven. For she loved much, but he who is forgiven loves little. And he said to her, Your sins are forgiven. And those who were at table with him began to say among themselves, who is this who even forgives sins? And he said to the woman, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. Read that in connection with Lord's Day 34 on pages 888 and 889 in the back of your hymnal. Part of our study through the uh, fundamentals of the Christian faith is summarized in the Heidelberg Catechism. Come now to the law of God in Lord's Days 34 to 44. We uh, won't read question 92 as we've just read the Ten Commandments a few moments ago, and so we'll uh, start at 93, read questions 93 through 95 together responsively. It asks, How are these commandments divided? Into two tables, the first has four commandments teaching us how we should live in relation to God. The second has six commandments teaching us what we owe our neighbor. And what does the Lord require in the first commandment? That I, not wanting to endanger my own salvation, avoid and shun all idolatry ...sorcery, superstitious rites, and prayer to saints or to other creatures. That I rightly know the only true God, trust Him alone, and look to God for every good thing, humbly and patiently, and love, fear, and honor Him with all my heart. In short, that I renounce all created things rather than go against God's will in any way. And finally, question 95, what is idolatry? Idolatry is having or investing something in which one trusts in or places alongside of the only true God who has revealed himself in his word Love as we uh, come to the Ten Commandments, question 93 tells us that they are divided into two tables. That's the same thing Jesus says in, in Matthew 22. The first four teaching us um, how we are to live in relation to God, and then the, the second table of the law, the, the uh, last six commandments teaching us what we owe our neighbor. So the next several weeks as we uh, make our way through the first table of the law, Commandments 1 through 4, and focus on, on how we are to live in relation to God. I want to focus on, on the worship that we owe Him. It's often been observed, maybe you've noticed, that, that the first four commandments can be um, easily arranged around the topic of worship. The uh, first commandment uh, telling us that we should worship God. Indeed, telling us also who it is that we worship. The uh, second commandment and the third, both together, telling us how we should worship him. Not in any other way that he's commanded in his word and not doing so vainly, but reverently, even as we sang a moment ago, mingling joy with trembling fear. And then the fourth commandment, about the Sabbath, it it teaches us uh, when we should worship and that we worship God on his appointed day and his appointed way. And so that's what we'll look at over the next several weeks, beginning this morning with this foundational command uh, that we worship the true God and him alone. Who of course reveals himself to us as triune, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And so this morning we consider the worship that is, is given the Son by this woman who's called a sinner. I believe in Luke chapter 7, we're given a a model portrait of true worship, a picture of what God wants from us in the first commandment, where we see first the requirements of worship, that it is the duty that we owe to God. We see second, the reason for our worship in the words of Exodus chapter 20, because God brought us out of bondage. And then third, we see the result of our worship, that we go in peace, uh, no longer serving our sins, but serving the Son. Look me first at the requirement of worship, that it is the duty we owe to God. Look, tells us that as Jesus was eating in the house of one Simon the Pharisee, a woman of the city who was a sinner came and brought an alabaster flask of ointment and Standing behind Jesus at his feet, weeping, she began to wipe his feet and and to kiss them. So we wonder, what is is she doing? Most fundamentally, what she's doing is, is worshiping. It's interesting, actually, that the Greek word for worship is proskuneo, which is a combination of the preposition pros, meaning toward, and, and the, the verb kineo, which means to kiss. Etymologically, the, the Greek word for worship means to kiss toward. Now, One lexicon says originally it, it designated the custom of prostrating oneself before someone to kiss their feet or the hem of their garment. It is a humble act of loving acknowledgement of someone else's greatness. That's what worship is. And that's why I say that this woman is a paradigm, a a model of true worship. She, She prostrates herself before the king, she recognizes his great worth, and she kisses his feet. But of course, as this woman does this, it's not well received by all. Sometimes it is the case with true worship. Not everyone views it as such. Sometimes it makes others uncomfortable. That's certainly the case with this woman of the city who, as she worships Christ in humble adoration, Simon the Pharisee says to himself, if this man were a prophet, he, he would have known what kind of woman this is. No self-respecting prophet would let a woman like that touch him. But of course, this prophet is the friend of sinners, as Luke has just said just two or three verses earlier. And so it's not that Jesus isn't a prophet, but he's not the kind of prophet Simon expects. For the very next verse, Jesus shows himself to be a prophet, knowing what Simon has said to himself, answering him, Simon, I have something to say to you. He, he, he reads the mind of, of Simon as Simon has, has said these things to himself. Jesus shows himself to be a prophet. And he, he goes on then to tell Simon a parable. A parable that, that we'll come back to in a moment. But first I want to just... Get at the point of of Jesus even telling this parable. The point is that he is vindicating this woman as a true worshiper of the king. And then after telling the parable, he he turns toward the woman, yet still speaking to Simon in verse 44, and says, Simon, I entered your house and and you didn't give me any water for my feet. But she has, has wet my feet with her tears and she has wiped them with her hair. Simon, you didn't greet me with a kiss. But from the very moment I came in, she has not ceased to kiss my feet. And and Simon, you you forgot to anoint my head with oil. But she has anointed my feet with her ointment. He vindicates this woman who Simon saw as a nuisance. And in vindicating her, he, he points out three specific aspects of her worship. Now, first he points out that she washes his feet with tears here we see the humble prostration of worship, that it doesn't seek, first of all, to make much of oneself, but rather abases oneself. I was reading a book recently on on worship where the author made the point from Exodus 34 that Moses, when, when God appeared to him in a cloud and revealed himself to be gracious and slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love. God gives that glorious um, revelation of himself in Exodus 34. Moses' response, very next verse, was to quickly bow his head toward the ground and worship. The author made the point that worship is an act that exalts the one being worshiped while seeking to draw no favorable attention to the worshiper. Moses reduced his profile. And he placed himself at the mercy of the one above him. That's the very same thing she does here. She humbly prostrates herself before Christ, even as we in worship are to humble ourselves before God, acknowledging that we are nothing and exalting him alone. That's what she does in in verse 44. As on her knees, she wipes his feet with her hair. And then second, she kisses them. In fact, Jesus says in verse 45, from the time I entered, she has not ceased kissing them. You see, she's doing literally what Psalm 2 called us to do figuratively. She is kissing the Son. Boys and girls, you understand when we sang that psalm earlier, it was talking about Christ, the, the son of God and son of David. It's, it's not uh, talking about kissing the sunshine, but, but kissing Jesus, God's son. It was... It was uh, talking about Christ. Psalm 2 is is calling us to to kiss him by humbling ourselves before him in heartfelt worship. That's what the second psalm, the very entryway into the Psalter is calling us to do, and that's what this woman does here. Not only humbling herself as she does in bowing at his feet, but but humbling herself with heartfelt devotion. She has not ceased to, kissing him. She's like the bride in the Song of Songs. She loves him. Perhaps she's heard reports about this friend of sinners. Perhaps she's heard of how he feasts with with tax collectors and sinners as he did in Luke 5. Perhaps she's even witnessed it. Perhaps she's even been present at one of these. What she's heard about the friend of sinners elicits a response of heartfelt Devotion. She does not cease kissing him. This worship is characterized by humility and by loving emotion. Loving emotion, which we see in both the constant kissing and in the tears. She reminds us that while certain Pharisees might detest emotion in worship, Christ is not but in fact calls us to worship him, mingling joy with trembling fear. A recognition of the greatness of the one we worship, yet doing so with loving joy that sometimes might even produce tears. Her worship is heartfelt. And then in verse 46, the third thing that Christ mentions is that she anoints his feet with ointment. From this we see a couple of things. First, we see that her worship is costly. She is here bringing an offering before the king, even as, as we do in our worship. But second, this costly offering also seems to have a, a theological aim. As one commentator has said, the significance of anointing him with precious perfume is unmistakable. Jesus is being anointed as the long-awaited king of Israel. She is anointing him with ointment, even as the the kings like David or Saul in the Old Testament are anointed. He is not only the prophet of verse 39 who knows Simon's thoughts. He is not only the priest of verse 48 who forgives sins, but he is the prophet, priest, and king, the long-awaited Messiah, who she recognizes as such in pouring this ointment out upon him. From these three aspects of her worship that Christ points out, we see that true worship humbles oneself before God with a recognition of who he is and a loving, heartfelt devotion. As it says in question 94, it rightly knows the only true God, recognizing who he is and what he's done. It humbly and patiently looks to him and loves, fears, and honors him. With all one's heart, would it not be fair to say that the woman of Luke 7 exemplifies the positive command of worship that is implied in the first commandment? She does what question 94 says and what God's word requires. And I say requires because of the implied rebuke of Simon in verses 44 to 46 for not doing these things. He doesn't kiss Christ. He doesn't anoint him. He doesn't welcome him and wash his feet. And he doesn't rightly know the only true God, trust him alone, and look to him for every good thing humbly and patiently and love, fear, and honor him with all his heart. In fact, not only does he fail to do this, but he criticizes the one who does. In Simon... And in this woman, we have both the the positive and negative example of what keeping the first commandment does and doesn't look like. And to our surprise, it is the religious outsider, the one labeled sinner, who gets it. And the religious conservative who doesn't. J.C. Ryle says we would do well to remember the case of this Pharisee. It is quite possible to have a decent form of religion, to, to behave with, with great correctness and propriety at church, and yet not truly worship. Indeed, to hardly understand the meaning of worship. Even to have hearts that are hardened toward those who do. Darren, Sarah, as, as you raise little Josiah You raise him to be less like Simon and more like this sinful woman, humbling herself, or in his case, himself before Christ in in heartfelt worship because he understands that the friend of sinners deserves his heartfelt praise. You raise him in such a way that you teach him not merely to to go through the motions and and dine with Jesus, but in a reserved and, and calculated way, criticizing those who go too far. But as one writer said in a summary of this woman's worship, seeing Jesus as the one for whom it is worth humiliating ourselves before a crowd, for whom it is worth sacrificing both our money and our dignity, who is so far above us that we cannot abase ourselves enough. In his presence. May Josiah and may all of us kiss the Son in that way and give him the worship that is his due. And it is especially because of the grace that he has shown us in the gospel. Same gospel that we just saw pictured a moment ago in Josiah's baptism. Because Christ the King graciously condescends to wash him of his sins, he and we respond in praise. So what we think about next is we consider not just the requirement of worship, but the reason for worship. Namely, because of his grace to us in the gospel. That's what Jesus makes clear in verses 40 to 43 as he tells this parable of a certain moneylender who had two debtors. Uh, one owed, them, or owed him 500 denarii, and the other owed him only 50. So those two amount to be the equivalent to about a year and a half's wages for the first person, and then maybe two months or so uh, worth of wages for the second man. But Jesus says neither of them could pay the lender. And so what does he do? He, he cancels the debt of them both. And then Jesus asks Simon, Simon, which of them do you think will, will love the money lender more? And Simon says, as I suppose most of us would too, well, I suppose the one for whom he canceled the larger debt. She says, yes. And he turns toward the woman, making clear that she is the one in the parable who has been forgiven a great debt and so responds with great love. It says in verse 47 that she has been forgiven much and so loves much. The point is, is not that her love results in forgiveness. Parable makes clear forgiveness comes first, but having been forgiven, she recognizes the great debt she owed and is overcome with a grateful response. His extravagant forgiveness elicits a response of extravagant love, of extravagant worship. And Jesus' point is, is that because Simon does not realize the greatness of his sin and the greatness of his need for forgiveness, he does not love much. And so he's left to ask himself and we as the reader with him, do you see yourself as a great sinner having been forgiven much? Or are you basically a pretty good person who, who though dependent on God's grace in theory, is really not that bad? If you see yourself in that way, your worship will be reserved, calculated, lacking in emotion, and critical of others. Adele Ralph Davis said, lack of worship may indicate that we are strangers to forgiveness. That we don't really see ourselves as sinners, and, and so don't really see ourselves as, as needing to be forgiven. That was Simon. And if we would not be like him, but, but rather like this woman, then we must understand the enormity of the debt we owe God, which he has forgiven by grace through his son. Again, verse 42 says, Neither of them could pay the debt. And so what does he do? He cancels it. He canceled the debt of both. Ralph Davis again says this verse right here is the gospel. We we may not have the whole gospel in verse 42, but we have a large chunk of it. The gospel brings together hopeless condition and impossible gifts. And we will not understand the latter, the impossible gift, until we understand how hopeless our condition was but for the grace of God. And if we understand that, then then our grateful response will look not like Simon's, but like this sinner's, who is overwhelmed by the fact that the Holy One would welcome her to dine with him, who is overwhelmed by the fact that he is, as Luke just said two verses before this, a friend of sinner's, And so her response to his extravagant forgiveness is extravagant love. The reason for her worship is the grace of God in Christ. That's the same point that Luke 7 makes. It's the same point that our catechism makes. It's very structured. Boys and girls, you think about the outline of the catechism, if you could summarize it in just three words, it would be guilt... Grace and gratitude, or sin, salvation, and, and service. And this worship that's being commended to us and, and commanded of us in the first commandment, it falls in the law of God, which we find in, in the gratitude section. Meaning the worship that commandments one through four call us to is because of the grace that God has shown to guilty sinners like us. That's the point that the catechism makes in its very structure. That's the point that the law makes in fronting these commands with that preamble of grace that, notice, question 92 attaches to the first commandment. It says, what is God's law? And it doesn't begin with, you shall have no other gods before me, but it begins, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. As this woman of the city beholds her prophet, priest, and king, she hears those words echoed. This is the Lord my God who welcomes sinners and offers free and full forgiveness by grace. Therefore, I will worship him. Therefore, I will trust him alone and look to him for every good thing humbly and patiently and love, fear, and honor him with all my heart. This kind of heartfelt worship is produced by an awareness of God's grace. By the blood of Jesus, he forgives and welcomes sinners. So, again, Darren and Sarah, if you would raise Josiah to fulfill this first and greatest commandment to love the Lord his God with all his heart, soul, mind, and strength, if you would raise him to to be a worshiper of Christ, then you remind him often of his sin and of God's grace. You remind him often of what we confess in that first vow that that you just made, that he is conceived and born in sin, as all of us are, and therefore subject to the misery that sin brings. But God, by grace, welcomes him, offers him full and free forgiveness, and even pictures that full and free forgiveness in the waters of baptism by which he pledges to wash us of our sin through faith in Christ. You let that awareness of his sin and of God's grace wash over him so that he desires to worship this prophet, priest, and king. You, you teach him about the gospel so that he would respond in gratitude. You, you teach him, Lord's Days 5 through 31, about grace so that he would respond in gratitude. Moms and dads, it is not the law by itself that makes our children worshipers keep the first commandment but it is that preamble of grace it is lord's days 5 through 31 that moves their hearts to love him like this woman that's not only true of our children that's true of all of us and so we need week after week to hear the gospel it is the reason for our worship but it's also the result of our worship that as this woman has beheld the king in his beauty, as she has kissed the sun, it then says to her in verse 50, go in peace. The result of beholding the king in his beauty, the result of loving, fearing, and honoring him with all her heart is peace. It's the only way to know peace through beholding his grace in the gospel and having our hearts captivated in awestruck worship, uh, worship, verse 50, that that is, is produced by faith. Jesus says your faith has saved you. The only way to know this peace is by responding to God's grace in the gospel through faith in Christ with awestruck worship. That and that alone leads to peace as you come here this morning weary of the world and and laden with sin as you come here this morning perhaps lacking peace either because of your sin or because of of your suffering and the sorrows of this life it is the worship of Christ the King that brings peace it is in beholding who he is and what he's done and like this woman or, or like the bride of the song of songs kissing him with the kiss of faith as he welcomes you To dine with him. There's a sense in which this this whole scene is a picture of what we do in worship. This whole scene is a picture of Christ condescending to welcome sinners into his presence and dine with him at his table. to to preach to them as he does in verses 40 to 43 in that parable, to proclaim forgiveness as he does in verse 48, and then even to send them with his benediction as he does in verse 50, where the result of having worshipped him is peace. It's interesting, actually, Christ doesn't just say, go in peace. He says, literally, go into peace as if he is sending her out into a new way of living in light of his grace. Go now into the way of peace and not the way in which you once walked. As you have kissed the sun and beheld his beauty, let that now loosen sin's grip on you, or rather loosen your grip on sin, so that you no longer give yourself to the sins that you once did. Question 95, so that you no longer have or invent other things in which you place your trust like she once did. But as she has beheld the Son, Christ is calling her to a new way of living. In fact, some even speculate that in chapter 8, verses 1 through 3, when it says that Jesus then went on preaching the gospel and many women followed him, that perhaps she was among them. Of course, we don't know that. But certainly, as she goes into peace and follows Christ at least in principle, if not literally, that leads to a new relationship with the sins by which she had once been known. This woman of the city is now woman of the king, this sinner is now a saint, as she has beheld the king in his beauty, as she has let her mind's eye focus on the excellence and beauty of the son. That puts into perspective the emptiness of the sins and idols that she once served. Uh, Thomas Chalmers, in his famous sermon of the expulsive power of a new affection, he, he said, the way that we disengage our hearts from idols is not simply by exposing their worthlessness... It's not simply by reminding ourselves how bad they are, but but addressing to the mind's eye the worth and excellence of something greater. As she has beheld the beauty of the sun, that's what God uses to expel her love for the sins that once enslaved her the expulsive power of a new and greater affection for Christ. God works that in us in the context of worship as we behold the Son through the means of grace. As we dine with him at his table, as we hear him pronounce our sins forgiven, as we hear that benediction of peace, he uses those means to put our mouths out of taste for the sins that once entangled us. That's why we speak of what we do in worship as means of grace. They are means by which the Son expels the idols of our hearts as we behold his glory in the gospel. Heath Lambert makes this point over and over in his book on uh, sexual sin that it's not enough simply to acknowledge true and awful things about our sin, but we must dwell on true and wonderful things about Jesus. Grace motivates our fight against the idols of question 95. Beholding the excellence of Jesus puts, in proper, puts our sin in proper perspective and makes us worshipers of the right things rather than the wrong things. That's the connection between worship and idolatry. Not only that that we're called not to worship idols and and to worship God instead, but it's in worshiping God in beholding his beauty in the gospel like this woman that we are freed from sin's grip on us, strengthened by the means of grace to no longer love those things, but by the expulsive power of a new and greater affection to see them as they are and to see Christ as he is. So again, Darren And Sarah, as you raise Josiah to worship Christ and not created things, you point him to the grace of God and the gospel so that he truly understands the beauty of Christ responding in worship, the result of which is being strengthened in his fight against sin. You show him Christ when he gets up. And when he lies down, when you sit in the house and when you walk by the way, you show him Christ in family worship and you show him Christ by bringing him twice each Lord's Day to public worship for it is by these means that God will minister grace to him and strengthen him in the battle against sin. Same way that he uses these means in each of us, showing us that we are sinners like this woman whose debts have been forgiven by grace and so we respond in heartfelt worship the praise of his glorious grace amen our father in heaven help us like this woman to recognize our hopeless condition and your impossible gift the gift of your own son the friend of sinners who welcomes even us at the cost of his own blood And help us in view of his mercies to give ourselves in heartfelt praise to you who so deserve our worship. Let Josiah be a worshiper of the king and not like Simon one with a decent form of religion and great propriety at church, but a heart unmoved by your grace. Lord, we pray that that would describe none of us. And insofar as it does, we pray that you would forgive us and that you would cleanse us, that you would give us a vision of the friend of sinners so that we might say, my Jesus, I love thee. I give you myself, mingling joy with trembling fear. I pray in Jesus' name, amen.